My name is Tim Whiffen, and I'm here today with David Olney. How are you, David? I'm good, thank you, Tim. How are you today? I'm doing well. So, David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can do that. Where do you want me to start? Well, I'm, as you know, one of your university students, and I've found a lot of things that you say very profound, and I would love for people to hear more about them. Perhaps we can start with maybe your educational background and then move on to a bit of your perspectives. Okay. I I think an important thing to let everyone know straight away is I'm blind and I went to a primary school for the blind, which was a very nice environment where everything was very safe and where you couldn't harm yourself even if you did something mental, like you know jump off the top of the play equipment. <laughs> everything was kind of blind friendly. Mm. And as much as I should have loved it, I hated it with a passion because some weird little bit of my child brain said, this is not what the world's like. This is an artificial space. Mm. So I remember being absolutely committed that I was going to go to a mainstream high school and function in a mainstream high school no matter how hard it was. And what I discovered was I had to be very organized, but a world in which there were all these interesting things, but where I had to plan to work around being blind was an infinitely more rewarding, inspiring, encouraging, interesting, sometimes frightening experience. So somewhere very early on, I got the idea that being outside of my comfort zone is really important. Uh, got to the end of high school, everyone said I should go to university, mm, thought, okay, in a bit, but I need to know I can be useful and earn money first. So end of high school, instead of going to uni like all my friends did, I started playing guitar and trained to be a sports injury masseuse. Mm. And within six months was you know playing guitar to earn coins and working for chiropractors and physiotherapists. So I've always had a practical bent where at the end of the day, no matter how good a thought is, I need to know I've got practical skills that have value to society broadly. So once I went to university, you know, after qualifying as a masseuse and getting quite good at playing guitar, I always viewed university as interesting, but it's not an end in itself. Hmm. So got through an arts degree without any of the adaptive technology I have now by getting lots of people in my family to read to me and getting my guitar students and violin students to read me in exchange for their lessons. Mm-hmm. So you had little 16-year-old metalheads having to read Nietzsche to me. <laughs> that was thoroughly entertaining. Uh, end of undergrad, all this amazing technology comes along, screen reading software comes along for computers. So suddenly I can scan a book into the computer and have the book read it to me straight after it's finished. No more having to get someone to read it onto a tape or trying to get access to a rare accessible copy. So suddenly, once again, you can take responsible for your own life, but you have to do it by using the technology well, by getting things done in advance. That set me out to do honours in politics at the Adelaide of University. University of Adelaide, get it the right way around, David. <laughs> um, supposedly, I got the highest mark for about 25 years since Brian Turner, who runs a think tank uh, at Cambridge or Oxford, I think Cambridge. Wow. Um, which was kind of cool. And it meant everyone said, David, do a PhD. And I'm like, hmm, well, all right, all right. Don't have a better plan. <gasps> you but, listen to everyone. Well, no, in the sense that I thought it's a good opportunity, but more importantly, it comes with scholarship money. Yes. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> and what I really wanted to do was go to London and study violin with very good teachers in London. So I thought, well, if I do this PhD thing and stash most of my scholarship money, 
oh, off to London with the scholarship money. Lovely. And about a year and a half into my PhD, the combination of using a white cane uh, and playing violin was too much for my right wrist. Mm. And suddenly I had to take university seriously. And that was a pretty weird moment to not be able to play violin because the wrist just hurt too much. Mm. But to go, well, I'm here in a PhD and someone's just offered me tutoring. Mm. And I thought, well, okay, I like teaching guitar and violin to individuals. What's it going to be like walking into a tutorial and teaching 25 people? And I'd say the first time I walked into a tutorial, I was nervous for about 30 seconds. By about two minutes in, I'm going, this is the best thing ever. Mm. And... That was an amazing experience because I didn't expect that to be the case. But what I really reflected on the first semester of tutoring is I'm not here to teach people to believe what I believe or think what I think. I'm here to empower people to think for themselves and come up with good arguments so they know their beliefs are based on evidence and rigor. And that was profoundly rewarding to go, you can do something you love, and simultaneously empower people to be themselves. And that's why we have you here today. Yeah, the, the rest is kind of after that, follows that line and just keeps extending in different directions, whether it be teaching different courses in university. So, you know, starting to teach the courses to explain the post 9-11 security world or developing courses on applied thinking and complex problem solving or from that ending up out in the consultancy world, teaching problem solving to, you know, uh, uniform people in army teaching problem solving skills to government departments to law firms to engineers um, and you know working with other groups of consultants such as John Bruni at Sage International Australia where I get to sort of push how far we can theorize ideas about security and Australia's role in the region and that's your major interests, right? So your background was political philosophy? Yeah, really. At the time I went through the University of Adelaide as an undergraduate, we did political philosophy extremely well because we had amazing people from the UK and the US with incredible intellectual pedigrees. And we still do in people like Lisa Hill, but whereas we have one Lisa Hill now teaching political philosophy, we used to have five people teaching political philosophy. Mm. So if you were like me, and ideas of how does society work, how can you make a better society, are what really resonate with you, I could pick three courses every semester that could help me understand that better. It was sort of, in my opinion, kind of a golden age of being able to imagine what a better society was like with the requisite people and ideas around you to keep pushing you to go further. And so what... So you had interests in, in security and perhaps maybe more broadly defense from an earlier stage than that though, right? Was... Yeah, at the time I started as an undergraduate, several of my friends gave up their degrees uh, to go through the Australian Defense Forces Academy and become army officers. Um, you know, I had friends that were in Somalia with the UN when Black Hawk Down happened. Uh, I had friends who were in Rwanda you know, soon after the genocide. Several of my friends went to East Timor as you know, junior army officers in the late 90s. So when 9-11 happened and suddenly security is relevant, academia in the main here in Adelaide scrambled to try and know something about it. Yeah. Whereas I'd always had an interest because it affected my friends' lives. So it really affected how I teach security. I don't care what the grand strategy is until I understand how it affects individuals. 
so you do a lot of consulting for, say, defence, government departments, things like that. So they're a good place, a breeding ground perhaps for some of the ideas that you have. In some ways, they're a breeding ground for some of them, but they're also very receptive to new ideas. So it's very much an interchange where because, you know, particularly for people in the Defence Force, there is always the risk of them losing their lives and the job will entail potentially having to take other lives. If they can come up with a way to solve a problem that means they're at less risk and less people have to die or suffer, that is their preferred answer. So when you give them an opportunity to learn you know, problem-solving tools where you don't pretend to know their job because part of what I do is never pretend to know someone's profession. I'm there to help people learn to solve problems in a new way. How they apply it is up to them, and then I can help them again. But the great thing in defence is always this need to be moving forward because whether it is the hypothetical near-peer enemy of another state or a terrorist organisation, no enemy stops evolving. They're always looking for an edge so that they win instead. What was highlighted to me very early on after meeting you was, as you were talking about earlier, your ability to teach people to assess an argument, use evidence to base their beliefs, and um, not necessarily accept everything for face value and take a deeper look. And I think that's something I really wanted to talk about today. Yeah, to me... Yeah, I think a critical thing that had an impact on me was sitting at home one night and had Parkinson on on the TV and he interviewed David Blunkett, who was one of Tony Blair's senior ministers. And David Blunkett was a fascinating person because you know, he was a, a blind senior Labor politician in the UK with a stellar career, you know, a really exceptional person in his own right, but also a great role model for blind people. And, you know, at that point, I think I was still an undergrad or maybe just started on us and going, wow, this is possible. But David Blunkett told a story and it always stuck with me. And it was a story of, you know, he was talking about how his sons were just starting university in the UK and he'd always be being, putting pressure on them, be organised, be ready, get it ready the night before. And one of his sons turned around and said, Dad, calm down, we're not blind. If need be, we can look over a friend's shoulder and work out what's going on. We can rush and pick up the notes or the book before the lecture. We're getting the work done and we're doing well, but stop worrying. And to me, that was a critical moment. It sort of crystallized an idea in my head that any time you have an impact on people or an influence on them, make sure you're not treating them as if they're a mini version of you and don't treat them as if they should end up making the same decisions you make. So really... Everything I've tried to do as a teacher uh, and as a consultant is to say to people, look, here's different ways to do things. What's your answer? Because I don't want you to copy mine. And so you've then, in your job, you've learnt a lot of things from other people as well, I'm sure. You've managed to develop yourself just by opening students up to this conversation. I think so. I think there's a a wonderful book uh, written by a Russian heiress who Nietzsche wanted to marry. I think from memory her name's Lou Salem. And she reached the conclusion in her book about him that one of the things that was difficult to get her head around because Nietzsche was in the process of losing his sight. Mm. You know, he was probably down to 10 or 15% vision by his last book. Um, is that she would look at his face when they met in the morning for coffee and the look on his face would be like thunder and lightning. And she'd go, what did I do? Am I late? 
you know, did I say something dumb in the first 30 seconds? And it dawned over on her over time that what was always on his face was what was going on in his head, not in the world. You know, if someone drew him out into the world, then his face would reflect that. But more or less, it was reflecting thinking time. And I think one of the consequences of being blind and also very inquisitive is I'm a sponge. I just absorb everything, ponder on it a little bit at the time, pack it away for later to compare to other things. So I can't help, you know, going, oh, that's interesting, store that for later and then connect it to three other things and see if they fit and make a better picture Mm. or increase my understanding. This has done two things. It's meant, you know, I seem to have a remarkable memory for the essence of things, not necessarily the specifics. But also, too, because I'm always absorbing new things, I'm not real worried about changing my mind. If someone gives me better evidence, I'm happily going to go, well, that's a better argument than I had yesterday. I'm not going to wholly and solely buy this new argument because I haven't invested it deeply enough yet. But this is better than I had, so let's go somewhere that's between what I had and this new thing until I get a new bit of evidence that confirms one or the other a bit more. So I guess the biggest thing I've tried to take to teaching is you know, don't believe me just because I said it. Understand my process, and then if you've got better evidence, go beyond what I've taught you. And that's something that stands out, that stood out very, very early on. So my approach now to conversations is just completely about being open and trying to take away something that I didn't know earlier. Mm. So approaching the other person as if they've had a completely different life experience and maybe learnt things that I've never learnt and now I have the ability to listen to them and maybe learn something from them. Yeah, like if for me it's a strange thing teaching because when I teach I need to be the one doing all the talking so that you lot can learn enough fast enough to start teaching yourselves. But if it's just a quiet social thing I'm happy to be the one doing the listening because it's like I'm learning something new. I'm letting this person be themselves and in doing so I'm not just finding out a fact, I'm finding out the experiences that shape the fact, that shape the person. I'm getting a whole context here that is infinitely more interesting than if they said a fact and then I bombarded them with questions because I want to do something with their fact that suits me. I'd rather be you know, inspired to make sense of, you know, this person's got a different lived experience. Wow, with a different lived experience comes a different way of putting pieces together. That's interesting. Does it highlight to you what is important about being right and being wrong or maybe the nature of why we're so um, fragile, let's say, about I think being right? very much so that people's life experience them or people's life experience leads them to believe that because they've experienced all these things, the consequence of that experience needs to be right and needs to have value and needs to be valued by other people. And that's half true. We need to value other people for their lived experience and acknowledge their lived experience, but also to go, well, actually, I don't agree with you because your lived experience has tended you towards this answer, but there's a world full of other arguments and other perspectives that say, I can make a better argument for explaining that or I can make a better argument for moving beyond that by going more broadly than the person's individual life experience, my individual life experience, and incorporating as much you know, 
deep thought analysis and lived experience from other thoughtful, careful people as I can. So I'm all about, you know, don't ever discount someone's lived experience, but also acknowledge there's a limit to one life and one set of opportunities that can only be overcome by careful, I don't want to say rational thought, but I also don't want to say rational thought because it's more than rational thought. It's an openness to accept difference, to embrace difference. You know, in Australia, we often use the word, you know, tolerance. We're a tolerant country. Well, I don't want us to be a tolerant country and I don't want to be a tolerant person. Hmm. To be tolerant says, you stay over there and don't annoy me and I'll tolerate you. I want us to embrace difference and engage with the new and question the value, the veracity, the legitimacy of the new. We might look at it, turn it upside down, pull it inside out and go, no, it's not made anything any better. But if we only tolerate things... It's really saying, I don't want to change, but I'm also to be polite, going to accept you as you are, even though I'm not going to really engage with you. And that's not a way to get new or exciting or interesting or valuable insights. Well, change is scary. Absolutely. (laughs) So what in your mind is an effective way to talk to someone when perhaps they're a little bit fragile about being wrong? I think the best place to start with trying to get people to think more broadly is to just put information in front of them without demanding that they do anything with it. So if someone wants to talk about politics or a particular event, you know, say someone wanted to talk about the leadership spill a few weeks ago. If you talk directly about that, that's maybe going to be a challenge if they've put their political viewpoint forward. But if you go, well, you know, if we look at it, we've had a history of leadership change now since 2010. You know, we've nearly gone through a prime minister a year. This is pretty strange. Why has this happened? And if you start unpacking it in terms of, well, if we look that you know our economy was transformed in the 1980s and that transformation was continued in the 90s, both sides of Australian politics had similar views about being able to you know liberalise and open up and globalise our economy. You know, this means that we've lost the economic levers over politics as a consequence of not having... You know, the levers to affect the economy to get new social outcomes, the nature of politics has to change. So the nature of leaders becomes more important because with less levers to grab, they've got less ability to bring about outcomes. So a party wants to be really sure they've got the right leader. So if you start putting all these facts in front of someone, whether they're a Liberal or a Labour person, they're pro or particular Prime Minister, maybe you can move them on to talking about the history that led up to the event mm-hmm. about which they have a strong view. So this is why, to me, history, everyone needs to know some history. And not in gratuitous depth and not just one area. But you need to know where you live, how it became the way it became. Why the two sides of politics at one level seem very different, but also agree on a whole pile of things. That's not an accident. Now, this becomes the problem. You know, I remember a very strange moment in teaching was when I realised that my leather jacket was older than my students. (laughs) I was like, oh, that means I must be in my mid to late 30s. I'm now twice the age of my students. A couple more years, I'm going to be old enough to be their parents. And then you get to the point of being the same age as your students' parents. Yep. And you go, oh, right, no wonder they're treating me like a (laughs) grown-up. Because they're doing the great comparison that, hey, this person is about the same age as my parents, therefore I better treat them like a grown-up. 
Then you get to the point where you're slightly older than their parents. And you go, all the history these students don't have. And that's not to say you lot are ignorant. You have access to too much information to possibly know what to do with it in a hurry. Hmm. Because you can pick up your smartphone, look up anything on Google, and if you're a discerning user of the results, understand the extent to which people paying Google money gets their thing to the top, understand that the algorithms are tailing, tailoring to you. If you can get past those two things, you suddenly go, oh, I've got 300 results to go, you know, how did Australia change in the 1980s? Mm. What do you do with that? You guys don't have time to read the 300 results. Someone needs to go, okay, key events, and get you through the key events to understand how Australia's changed in the 20 years before you were born. And that's not to give you one political viewpoint. It's to say you need, if you're interested enough, to go away and look at the transition from you know, Malcolm Fraser to Hawke and Keating. Yep. You then need to look at the transition from Hawke to Keating as Prime Minister. You then need to look at why Keating's Labor government was thrown out and we got John Howard's government and John Howard's government lasted 11 years. But why he was thrown out for Rudd, but why Rudd didn't last. These mm. are key events. And if you start looking at them, you're suddenly going to see your world is a product of ongoing political, social, economic processes. And the more you can start to understand your place in the world as you're floating in the river, you're floating in the flow of these events. You know, an ancient Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, once said, you can step in the river at the same point every day, but it's not the same river. You know, what yeah. he meant, the waters flowed by. That's right. That, you know, you know that river to a degree, but if you look close, it's not the same. And if you can start to understand the social, political, economic flow of the time and place you live in, how it got the flow it's got, how the flow is changing, suddenly you can make so much more sense of the past, be more comfortable in the present, and be more able to affect the future. Back back to the argument. So your theory is less about kind of looking at two opposing viewpoints and trying to find some kind of middle ground or winning either side. It's about showing the background, almost deconstructing. Yeah. Deconstructing. It's argument. essentially you know, deconstructionism without the insanity of French deconstructionism in the <laughs> 80s of going, mm. we will deconstruct until we are 15 layers into the void. I'm like, no don't need to go in the void. I like the world. Yeah. The world's exciting. So to me, until people have enough information to tell them there's only two sides is artificially narrow. It's one of the ironies of university. We ask you to put forward your argument and the counter-arguments, but to present it as if from the minute you start writing it, you know which argument's going to win. So yeah, universities used to be far more honest when they had rhetoric departments. And the point in the rhetoric department was to learn to win. Mm. And I would much rather that we either have subjects where we help you to understand the world or understand a particular issue and then teach you rhetoric separately. The problem to my mind is we are combining teaching you to understand things and teaching you to understand things on your own with the rhetoric of winning. And they're two different things. Understanding is one thing. After you understand, you might want to play to win. You might want to beat someone in an argument just because you'll feel good. Mm. But you also need to consider in an argument, 
Why are you arguing? Are you arguing to get someone to open their mind? Are you arguing to make yourself open your mind? Are you arguing to get to a point more sophisticated than what you know and what the person you're arguing with knows? And to me, that's the ideal end point. Mm. That at the end of an argument, you're beyond where you were and so is the other person. And even if you can't agree, you're both grateful for being further down the flow of knowledge. You know, winning an argument, it's a nice sensation. But in the worst of situations, you've made an enemy. In a middle-type situation, you've shown you're highly capable and potentially you know, socially dangerous, <laughs> that if you get stuck into people, you, you know, you're going to humiliate them, whether you meant to or not. People are going, oh, that person lost, they're not smart. Do you really want to be doing that to people? And in the case of students, students are progressively becoming more passive. Mm. I think it's because there's just so much information and the world's so overwhelming, and it's like, okay, kids, sit down now. We need you to learn enough stuff to function in the world. Mm. And I think that's a massive mistake that education from grade one through to university is saying, look, there's so much you need to learn, just sit and learn. Well, no, you need to learn how to learn and then how to discriminate amongst the masses and how to get just enough information from people to go, how would I shortcut this? You know more. So I can tell you enough to shortcut it. But, you know, when you're dealing with the passivity we see now, uh, if I go in and I'm too erudite and the answer's too perfect, mm -hmm. all there is is silence. Again, look at your class at the moment. You're in the main a bunch of overachievers. You're more willing to talk as a group than most classes, I would argue. Is that a fair assessment? I would say so. Yeah, and yet relative to a class from 10 years ago, you're quiet as a group. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, you guys I... are not rambunctious. <laughs> I miss rambunctious classes. See, that's interesting. I, I grew up being, let's say, politically active before my voting age mm. you know enrolled to vote at 16 because i was just so ready mm. and i found myself putting my i found myself in situations where i wasn't winning friends because i was putting putting my opinions out there in such a perhaps naively negative way well you were doing what the education system had trained you to do mm. look like you could make the argument that your side was better than the other side you were doing what 12 years of education had led you to, mm. making sure that your essays in your year 12 exams were persuasive. Yep. And, you know, were you having to go through NAPLAN by the time you finished school or was that after you? Uh, I was doing it in primary school, yes. Okay, yeah. so you are totally affected by a system that says we are going to be judged on how well these kids do on an arbitrary standard that only measures small things. Heck yeah. You know, well done, education department. Thank you for this. <laughs> Taking very bright people and only teaching them to argue to win. Mm. Now, you know, arguing to win when you're facing someone who is truly annoying and their position is you know, truly frustrating and you've decided you want to hurt them, fine, it's great to have that skill set. <laughs> but I'm hoping that's maybe only one in 20 arguments I ever have yeah. is my aim to actually destroy the other person's position rock their world, destabilize their sense of self, that, that shouldn't be one's aim. Mm. It should be something you can do. You know, like it's fine to know how to play a, how to play piano accordion, but I'd prefer that people don't. You know, devastating arguments are much the same. It's good to know how if necessary. 
but is it the best way to build a more inclusive, inquisitive, integrative society that embraces the new and deals with difference? Mm. And again, I don't want to sound tree hugger here. I'm not talking about a warm, fuzzy, you know, uh, cosmopolitan world where everything's nice. Mm. Our world is too hard to go straight from hard to nice. But the only way we're going to solve complex problems is to get everyone's viewpoint because it might have value. But more importantly, if you listen to other people, even if their idea doesn't get carried forward, the fact they were listened to means they normally buy in and want to help solve the problem. Mm. So we need as many people as possible to help us solve problems like what to do about climate change, what to do about you know, the global refugee crisis. We're not going to solve this by just sitting and watching our politicians argue to win because their ideas are small and inefficient and their ideas are old. And we need new ideas that incorporate new experience, technology, the understanding of resources being finite, the idea that even though we've theoretically on paper had economic growth for 25 years, whose life's got easier? Mm. Yeah, we need to embrace all these challenges with as many people on board as possible because the more people we have on board, the more likely the conclusions we reach will be ones that people will invest in, participate in, add value to, and you know, sooner than later bring about better outcomes. So if if we were to put this maybe in more of a philosophical, this might be to your distaste, but a more philosophical kind of uh, idea, would you say that it's something along the lines of you kind of follow the principle of charity to an extent that you don't want to demonize, let's say, um, a listener or assert their prior thinking is not understandable because it's going to... Yeah, see, the, the, the spirit of charity is a really interesting idea because... I did a couple of weeks of philosophy in first year and concluded I like political philosophy better mm. because of the direct applicable link to shaping society. Yes. That the thinking for thinking's sake, I could see the value, but I only had so much room on my timetable. <laughs> so I wanted to think for the sake of how do you improve society. So I would argue that I'll take something from political philosophy instead. You know, I'll take Rawls's veil of ignorance. Yeah. The idea that you need to make a decision about how to shape the world, how something should be, and you should make that decision not knowing if you are the most powerful person in the society or the most vulnerable person. And it's from that that I got my idea of charity, that if I don't know, you know who I'm going to be in this world we're making, I better make it as inclusive as possible. And I think keeping your own ego under control is an even more powerful tool than showing charity to others because you can be egotistical and go, oh, yes, well, I'm going to show you charity. Mm -hmm. Again, it sounds a lot like tolerance to me. Mm. Whereas if I go, David, calm your ego down. You don't know if you're going to be the smart guy teaching the course or the undergrad with no background, struggling and without the confidence to ask me a question. Mm. So I'll design the courses if I could be that kid. That sounds a little bit like um, an, maybe a Bayesian approach to what you're, the, the conversation that you're about to enter into. Would you like to explain that a little bit if it's Absolutely, correct? because you know, Thomas Bay's amazing guy, a, a country vicar, I think in the late 18th, early 19th century. No, earlier. 
because it's during the French Revolution that the French work on his theory. Mm. So it's essentially the early mid 18th century. And he was leaning on his billiard table, had you know a beverage in one hand, a billiard ball in the other, and he wondered if I drop this billiard board over my shoulder onto the table, and it bounces around, which end of the table is it going to end up on? He dropped it. He'd taken his guess, and it ended up the ended guess. He went, "Aha! Uh-huh. If I drop a second one, seeing I'm standing in the same place, it's more likely to be at the end it went." And of course, it turned out to be true. So he already realised this. Every time you've got more information you need to be willing to revise your hypothesis. Mm. And Bayes became the centre of very advanced maths that was difficult to do, and Bayes is why the Google algorithms get better and better at showing you what you want to see. Because every time you or I do a search, it goes, oh, Tim normally clicks on these things, David normally clicks on these things. These new things are most like the things they like. So the fun thing to do with this is get a class of people to do the same Google search and see how things pop up in a different order. Mm. But at a personal level, you don't need to understand the maths. You don't need to understand the Google algorithms. You simply need to remember, with each new piece of data, you need to perhaps revisit and revise your hypothesis. And if that becomes your normal state, then you're less likely to state your hypothesis as sort of some sort of categorical absolute. You're more likely to be open to the idea, well... I'll put some stuff out here and see how this person responds. And on the basis of how they respond, then I'll go a bit further or I'll change direction. Let's see what the two of us can do together to revise both our hypotheses rather than just make a statement and see what they do next. So in, in this situation, we could probably apply this this to a life perspective in, in that your hypothesis is perhaps the way that you view the world and you can constantly go back, review it with new data. Absolutely. What I would argue is that this is where we need to dive back into philosophy, that the one thing that probably I would argue that most people need in their own way to find their happy place with and their their point of confidence is their moral compass. Mm. How are they deciding how they treat other people? How are they deciding how they will let other people treat them? How are they deciding how much effort they will put in to contributing to affect the nature and shape of society? How are they deciding what their ethical view is on the treatment of animals, on whether they want to be a meat-eater, a vegetarian, or a vegan? Mm. These kind of things, you can be working on these hypotheses constantly, which are about your well-being, other people's well-being, and the well-being of the world in general. But if you have too much flexibility in these, you will find yourself going down rabbit holes of going, I suddenly feel morally very uncomfortable. Why? Well, exploration is good, but exploration beyond the point of a little bit of moral comfort can be really, really uncomfortable Mm. and bad for your sense of self. So, you know, for the sake of the listeners, as the podcasts go on, you know, I'll state up front now, my morality is really uh, a combination of sort of virtue ethics from Aristotle through to Nietzsche uh, and the Roman Stoics, so Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus. Mm. I'm more interested in how I did something than whether I got the outcome I wanted. Yes. Because to get the outcome I want means a whole lot of things in the world have to line up. That's beyond my control. But how I behave, how I treat you, how I let you treat me, 
how we shape our conversation to impact on the listeners so that they may or may not impact on society. Those are moral questions. Those, I've always got room to change my moral underpinnings a little bit. Mm. But being now more than 25 years into being pretty sure of the foundations of my morality, they're not set in stone, but I know why I value them and I know why they work. Mm. When you assess new information, are you looking at purely just, let's say, like data or are you appreciating like appeals to emotion and things that are happening in the data that's kind of coming in? Because, I mean, it's, it's super easy, especially in moral, uh, moral philosophy, that the um, emotion factor, is, as you're, you're a Stoic, so you probably feel that you probably feel as if the emotion matters least in some respect. But. See, that's where I'd say at some level I think the Stoics are misunderstood mm. and that maybe I would even disagree with the Stoics because there's a perception that Stoics just stoically suffer. Mm. And that misses the point that actually most of the Roman Stoics were hugely successful and had awesome lives. And in a couple of cases, right up to the point where emperors told them to kill themselves. And for the sake of their families, oh. they did. So there's a terrible tradition in Roman Stoicism of the very best of the Roman Stoics killing themselves so that their families and friends won't be persecuted. Mm. They take themselves out before the emperor can destroy them or do harm to them or diminish what they are. Mm. And it's a very strange strain in Stoicism, that if you can't live the way you want, you opt out. Um, that's a whole other end, and we can actually talk for a whole episode on big things like <laughs> that if you want. But I think the thing about emotion, part of why I only sat in philosophy lectures for a few weeks in first year of undergrad was because they had divorced being human and thinking from emotion. Mm. And that to me is a massive, massive problem. So to me, the truth is really in Aristotle. You're a charioteer with two horses. One is hyper-emotional, hyper-intuitive. The other is rational, and they pull in completely different directions. And your job as the charioteer is to get the two of them to behave, to move in unison, to pull your chariot. Mm. So to me, that is an underlying premise that within a few weeks of starting university, I had concluded there is something in this so deep, so important, the need to balance the you know the emotional and the rational. So you know later on as a an honor student, and then as a postgrad, you know running into work by psychologists like Jonathan Haidt, where Jonathan makes the comment that the emotional dog wags the rational tail. I just spun around on my chair in glee. Here's someone who's added my next simple way to remember how to function mm. to the charioteer. That first and foremost, our unconscious is emotional and intuitive. Our neocortex is the brand new bit of our brains. It's the bit that has to work hard and slow and we have to want it to work hard and slow. So, you know, to take emotion out is to deny what we fundamentally are. Mm. But to let it rule is to fundamentally waste our potential. So the trick is to not fundamentally deny what we are emotional, nor to waste what we fundamentally can be, which is rational and able to do new things. Yes, I never really want to be entirely emotional or entirely rational. I want to accept that they're both extremes, and that as long as I'm somewhere in the middle, being inside the goalpost is a good place to be. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take with a pinch of salt 
a lot of philosophy that underestimates the power of emotion. But I'm also willing to say to people that go, oh, look, you know, our unconscious determines us. No, it doesn't. Mm. David Eagleman, to my mind, has proven sufficiently that if you use your conscious mind well enough, you use your rational thought well enough, you can burn new processes into your unconscious. You can teach your unconscious to do huge new complex more or less rational things simply by issuing the order mm. and that you know, this is really the point of working on your own brain you discipline your own brain to the point where you just got to give it the order brain try and be more or less rational and it just gets on with it for you because that's what you've habituated to you've habituated to not denying emotion but also not letting it rule mm. i feel as if we've covered the logos extensively and now just the pathos but perhaps i can get your opinion a little bit on ethos ethos what angle do you want to go with otherwise i'll go off on the philosophical that's fair uh i would just want to get your opinion perhaps on the idea of an expert because i've heard you talk a little bit about how when we're not faced with imminent destruction we fall into the same ways of thinking and so that plays really interestingly into ethos in terms of appealing to uh, or talking from experience or appealing to experts yeah i think from a practical perspective this is another thing where being blind has had a big impact you know if my cane misses something on the ground Mm. that's the difference between life and death (laughs) Mm. you know there's times where i've gone along and the cane has found the very edge of where a manhole cover has been lifted and there's nothing around the hole Mm. now if i'd been sloppy i could just straight down the hole yeah who knows how bad that ends yeah and there's something about knowing that your life is precarious that i think is very beneficial (laughs) (laughs) it makes you stay in a certain degree of discomfort like if i have to walk down a new road and they're building a building and there's lots of white noise so i'm can't hear the sound of my cane reflecting off the surfaces Mm. so all i've got is the information of this cane tapping things that's uncomfortable that process causes discomfort so to my mind i always want my mind to be in a slight state of discomfort about challenging myself challenging ideas challenging views Mm. so for me you can claim to have expertise but i want you to show me how you've been willing to evolve you know go into an uncomfortable space and deal with new things that challenging could break your viewpoint so experts are great if you can see they've changed their mind and they're open to continuing to change it. But the more certain an expert is and the longer they've been certain for, the less likely I am to trust them. Mm. So in terms of you know what you were talking about, when things are, you know, are good, we tend to be more habitual. Well, most of human history, not a lot happened. <laughs> you know, for most of the 100,000 years that we've been modern humans, we were hunter-gatherers living in small bands then suddenly we get agriculture in cities and that changed us monumentally but then we fell into new habits of agriculture and living in bigger communities but still generally being poor ignorant and hungry Mm. and that really only changes dramatically 300 years ago as the lead up to the industrial revolution so most of human history says if what you got's working you don't really need to change it And if something big happens, we'll get in the new habit that works because it's not going to change very fast again. 
Whereas, you know, post, say, the 1750s, we've now been in constant change where people may have a brilliant idea or insight that takes us forward, but that doesn't mean they're going to have a second one. Mm. It'd be lovely if they can, but really, do most people need more than one big idea that helps the world move forward? I think it's lovely if they can, but we shouldn't ask it of them. Which means we should definitely investigate people's big ideas. But if they don't have a second big idea, we should question, you know, 20 years later, is your big idea still relevant? You know, if it's 50 years later, if it's philosophy and it's about how to build your moral compass, that idea might hold true. But if it's an area of psychology that has been overturned by the developments in neurology and neuropsychology, Mm. I want to move on. So what I want from an expert is to know how and why they believe what they believe, when they reach that conclusion, and what new evidence they've considered. If they can tell me all that, then I'm happy to believe them. But you know, if they can't tell me how, why, and when they got to their viewpoint and what they've done to see if they can push it further, I'm like, well, I'll take your stuff on board like I would anything, mm. but with no more than a 50-50 probability in Bayesian <laughs> terms because all I've got is their word. And though their word might be very interesting, and though their presentation might be charismatic and engaging, which makes me want to believe it more. Mm. And this is why we need to maintain our emotional side. Because the more charismatic and persuasive someone is, the more emotionally engaged. So, you know, when I'm teaching classes, and you've sat through enough of my classes now, I like trying to find out how what we're talking about affected a person and turning the concepts and the ideas and the history into the story of how people dealt with what happened. Now, I don't think that makes me very charismatic. What I've been smart to do is to tap into what people value, which is stories about other people. Yes. But what I hope is that by moving away from trying to be charismatic, moving towards telling broad contextual stories about people, you guys engage, become more active, take on responsibility for extending that story, adding your own bit, and becoming the authors of your own knowledge and your own stories about other people and events. Mm. So that you know, what I'm trying to create is an ethos of a constant motion machine. Not perpetual motion for the sake of perpetual motion, but that if the machine stops, there's got to be a good reason why. Mm. The machine should want to move again. There should be a next bit of knowledge. You should take what I've taught you this year and do something with it I've never thought of. Otherwise, I've taught you badly. (laughs) You know, anything we do in the podcast should give people a starting point, not an end point. I guess that's really the the ethos for the podcast. Definitely. Hopefully, what we do will give listeners a starting point to think about or act on things in a slightly new, slightly uncomfortable way, but that they will own their end point. And their endpoint will be different to what we talked about. And that maybe they'll want to get in touch and tell us how they've actually transcended what we talked about and got a better outcome than we hypothesized. Mm. That would be awesome. On that rather metaphysical note, I think it's actually a good place to, to end. Hopefully people are sufficiently entertained enough and curious enough to find out what we're going to be covering in the future, which could be along the lines of how we learn and perhaps even more specific things as identity politics but hopefully we can cover both um, very specific areas of life and then more broad things like success 
Mm. Again, it seems moving on to how we learn is a great next topic, and and hopefully what today's given people is an idea of we're not here to convince you to believe in what we say. We're here to convince you to believe in your ability to learn and have a better understanding of what you believe. Well, thank you, David. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tim.